perhaps because we're well into the retreat. <clears throat> I am wondering why I should say anything at all. If we've kind of done the work of you know, slowly, step by step, arriving here, in a, and we're connected to reality, connected to ourselves in a deep way, why take away from that? If there's some understanding that just to breathe is enough, just to be is enough, Why add anything? Sitting here with everyone, all of you, I feel a poignancy in the silence and the stillness. Many of you are sitting with your eyes closed. Very nice. So I hope that I can say some words that are in harmony with the practice you've been doing these days. And so I'll begin with the first of the two themes of the retreat, the four right efforts. And as I said, it could be summarized as don't make it worse, make it better. But the Buddha talked about it in terms of what's unskillful and skillful to avoid or stop doing what is unskillful, what is unhelpful, unhealthy, and to en engage in and keep doing that which is healthy or helpful or skillful. So we have this, these two categories, the unskillful and the skillful, it's kind of nice. I like these words as an alternative. To me, they're kind words. They're kind of functional, kind words. They talk about the function of things, helpful, not helpful, kind of, as opposed to saying right and wrong, or bad, good. So there is a there is a kind of a value judgment going into them, what's preferable and what's not preferable. But it's kind of matter of fact. It's just this is how things work, and if you work it this way, it's not skillful, it's not helpful, it's not healthy. If you work it that way, it's healthy and helpful. And these two sides uh, are important in practice. <clears throat> And sometimes I think the first one is probably the most important. Don't make it worse. 
to avoid having bring about unskillful actions, words, states, and if they arise in you, to learn to let go of them. And the reason why maybe this is the most important one is that the core thing we're trying to do in Buddhism, at least, is to bring suffering to an end. And suffering is caused by unskillful activity, unskillful states of mind. being attached, clinging, craving, in all its different forms, holding on to things. And so we're, we're learning in Buddhism to dissolve, to let go of, to end, to not have come back. These unskillful states that are the source, the cause, the condition for our suffering. And if we can are successfully able to do this, then we don't suffer. And that's pretty good. Maybe that's good enough. I often think that there's no higher goal in Buddhism than not suffering. There's, it's, uh, it makes it a lot easier to have that simple goal as opposed to some great ideals and metaphysical ideas of what should be and what we're supposed to attain. Maybe we're not supposed to attain anything. Maybe we're supposed to be happy, ordinary people who don't suffer. Wouldn't that be nice? A world of ordinary human beings with no suffering But these two, uh, skillful and unskillful, work together. And in this way, that you can't dissolve the unskillful activities of the mind with more unskillful activities. You can only dissolve the unskillful with the skillful. And this is a very important principle because I know I have, and probably some of you occasionally, have engaged in wanting to get rid of suffering or clinging or craving or fear or anger or something, uh, motivated by anger or greed or something, you know, some kind of attachment and holding and hostility. I had a friend who, in meditation, when his knees hurt, he would kind of jab into his knee, kind of push into his knee to hurt it back. <laughs> and so he ended up needing knee surgery. <laughs> so that was rather unskillful. And, um, so this principle, you can't, you know, to, to dissolve the unskillful, you need to somehow engage it with the skillful. Right. 
And, you know, as has been said on this retreat already, one of the really skillful things is mindfulness in its, in its simplest forms. Because what I mean by that is the complicated forms can come along with unskillful motivations. I'm going to be really mindful, really mindful. Not only will I get rid of this suffering I have, but uh, I'm going to get um, a medal, an award, and get to go home and show people that I'm a successful Buddhist. You know, is that skillful to have that conceit and try to be someone special doing this practice? I don't think it works so well that way. But it's a simple mindfulness that, and maybe the motivation of simple mindfulness is a motivation of compassion. To care about the suffering, to feel about it, and to wish yourself well, and to wish others well, so they don't have to suffer the, uh, your unskillful behavior that comes, that you do because you're suffering. A lot of unskillful behavior in the world, harmful behavior comes because people are suffering. And maybe you've been, you've done that. Maybe you have done unkind things because you hurt so much. It's a way of trying to somehow compensate or deal with the hurt. And so to have the compassion for self and others and to really want to look and go deep inside and see where the suffering is and, and then meet that suffering, meet our suffering in skillful ways. So then we have the other theme of the retreat, which is the four Brahma-viharas. And these are preeminently skillful states of mind. And these are wonderful states that work as, as uh, ways of meeting the challenges of our life, the challenges of our inner life. And I love these states. <clears throat> Um, I think all of them, but uh, I think that uh, I wasn't looking for compassion to become compassionate when I started Buddhist practice. I, I think I knew what the word meant, but it, I don't think it was in my operating vocabulary. I don't think I had occasion to talk, use the word with my friends and what I was doing. That just like it wasn't part of the language we had. And so when I started Buddhist practice, the idea of compassion didn't, wasn't really relevant for me, I thought. But in fact, it was very relevant because I needed it. I think I needed the compassion more than anything at that time, or at least it had a huge impact on me. And, um, 
And I was fortunate to meet some people who were very compassionate. And I remember it felt like um, being with them and feeling their compassion towards me and my challenges. I remember um, feeling like medicine or an elixir or something. It was quite inspiring. And I, I suffered a lot. And um, I felt, you know, at least I think I was fortunate to enter Buddhism at a time that it was, I think in America, Buddhism was pretty simple, in some ways simplistic. And so there wasn't all these books about mindfulness. I'm so glad I didn't have them. <laughs> I don't know if I would have managed because um, I didn't have any, I, I really, I didn't have any ideas I was supposed to do anything else but be present for what was going on. And, um, and so it just happened to be coincidentally that I, mostly what I was aware of was suffering and pain for a, for a number of years. But I wasn't smart enough or anything to think that it should be different. It didn't occur to me that it was supposed to be different or, or that I was supposed to do something about it. It's just like, I just took it for granted. Well, this is what's, what's here. So I just, you know, just be with it, be with it, be with it. And, um, and then um, uh, in retrospect, I realized that I started to tune in or or perceive or project onto reality and to uh, compassion everywhere. I started to see compassion. Remember, even the breeze against my cheek, oh, that's a compassionate breeze. And I'd see different objects in the world and and then I'd see some people and I said, oh, what a compassionate person. I remember telling some people about that, oh, this person is so compassionate. And they looked at me like shocked or something. <laughs> So I thought maybe I'm projecting, but but somehow I think that my need for compassion was so great that I was in fact kind of, I couldn't do it for myself, so I was allowing other people, other things, objects to do it for me and support me that way. But this idea of just sitting in the fire of my own suffering, uh, very simply, just being with it, feeling it, uh, allowed something inside to slowly begin to thaw or relax or or something began happening. One of the things that happened was that this compassion was born in me. And those early, one of the great consequences of those early years of practice was uh, unplanned, the arising of compassion. And that has become, it's, that became and is the kind of the organizing principle, I think, of my life from that. And I want to tell you these stories about how the, my, my experience with these Brahmaviharas because one of the lessons I wanted to, or one of the things I wanted to convey is um, It dawned on me recently that I've been doing this for a long time. And so 
you know, I've been doing this for now almost 45 years. It's kind of a long time. And so, it's not, you know, I, I, it's, I guess it's time I can, I can kind of go over and think about all these years and how it all unfolded. And one of the ways it unfolded was slowly. <laughs> and the slow kind of just day in, day out, that dedication to the practice, doing the practice, doing the practice, doing the practice, not looking for flashy things, not looking for big things or anything, you know, just, just doing it and doing it. And somehow I feel that, you know, that's kind of been the thread through it all that really has made a difference. But it's slow things like going through the fog and after a while realizing you're wet going through Buddhism and after a while realizing, hey, it had, it had an impact. <laughs> so then, um, so my early years was a lot to do about discovering compassion because of the suffering I had. And so a lot of that suffering abated quite a bit. And, um, and one of the things I learned in that abating of suffering was I learned a lot about how not to be unskillful with the suffering I had and the challenges I had and unskillful with the practice. I learned the hard way that to be greedy about practice, to strive, to strain, to tie my ego to it, to my identity to it, and try to prove myself as a, to try to do it so people would like me, to try to do it so I can escape so no one would know me to try to do it so that, um, you know, I would be a Buddhist superstar, you know, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of, you know, I did long enough, right, to do have a lot of different things go through. And, um, but I learned that that didn't, that didn't work. There wasn't, there wasn't a point. And, and this, the simplicity of practice of just being simply mindful, simply present, and being dedicated to showing up in a connected way, clear way for this experience. So then when I was introduced to uh, mindfulness practice and doing vipassana practice, it wasn't so much propelled by all the suffering I was experiencing because that had abated quite a bit. And as I was doing this mindfulness practice, it's like a whole other layer of the heart revealed itself. It was more like the the, um, the, um, the crust of the heart or the shields of the heart or the, or the preoccupations of the heart settled, quieted. And there was a heightened sensitivity, the heightened sensitivity of mindfulness, the heightened attention or clarity of mindfulness uh, was directly related uh, to uh, the heart being sensitive and so then kindness became more acute. And, and I discovered through this Vipassana practice, metta and loving kindness. And, and uh, it was, that also was not planned. In fact, if you had asked me, actually, you know, when the teachers started to do guided loving kindness meditation, I would tune them out. I thought, this is silly. You know, who wants to do this? It's artificial and saccharine. And so I was not into it but it got me anyway.
kind of snuck up on me against my will. <laughs> and, um, and so I discovered this uh, beautiful quality of kindness and friendliness and goodwill and a whole different feeling than compassion. So that was maybe like the second decade of practice. <laughs> Hope this isn't discouraging. <laughs> sure, some of you will be a lot faster than I was. I'm a slow learner. And then, um, and then at some point, I started being a teacher. And I think that uh, my best understanding of it so far is that I think it's quite a, one of the powerful things for me in being a teacher was the connection to people. And, uh, you know, people come and talk. People tend to come with a lot of sincerity and talk about important things. And, and often we get to see, it's a very fortunate thing to be a teacher, to get to see kind of the best of people, where they're really trying the best to find their way and work through their difficulties. And, and um, I came to have a, uh, a deeper and deeper appreciation of people. I started, I started seeing regularly how beautiful people are, how beautiful you all are. I said, wow. And I started to, uh, you know, and, and then from my own practice and knowing the beauty that's within, having eyes to begin to appreciate more of the beauty in other people and kind of, I felt like it's, you know, so this meeting people in this way as a teacher and other ways. So the third decade, <laughs> I don't know if it, but it doesn't quite work this way, but you know, it was um, learning mudita, learning to just enjoy people and appreciate their goodness and value their success and, and, f and feel the delight of that. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And then uh, somewhere in those second half of this 45 years or so, I also started to learn equanimity. And I don't know, you know, so much about how this Brahma Vihara's work or what equanimity really is. But uh, for me, um, equanimity has a lot to do with Being with the people I love when it's hard, when it's difficult. And having the love, but not giving in or kind of staying balanced or staying non-reactive or not being able to, you know, not being able to, you know, to do something, but also not wanting to avoid doing harm and to be able to stay loving, but in a non-reactive way, in a balanced way. And, um, and it seems like in the last 20 years, it seems like I've had lots of opportunities to love people and, and needing to stay equanimous. And so to feel the qualities and the tenderness and the, the kind of the warmth or the, the poignancy of this kind of equanimity I'm sure there's other forms of, you know, other kinds of ways equanimity plays out, equanimity Brahma Viharas, but, 
But, uh, you know, some of it has to do with the challenges of, of uh, family life. I think growing up, um, there wasn't a lot of drama growing up, positive or negative. So there wasn't like a lot of opportunities or necessity for to learn equanimity because it was always calm <laughs> or something. But um, but then I had to learn that equanimity, and that's been uh, I think uh, very very important for me personally. And this ability then to meet the unskillful and to be present for what goes on inside, and to meet it with the skillful. Um, is supported by these Brahma-viharas. To meet what's inside with compassion or loving-kindness or mudita or equanimity as needed. And sometimes equanimity is the most helpful. And that kind of uh, comes along and joins together with the, the momentum of mindfulness. Whereas the mindfulness gets stronger, there's also a growth of equanimity, a capacity to be very present for our experience, intimately present, connected to our experience, um, but uh, not being f not being for or against, not reactive to it, or come into imbalance around it. So we can't dissolve the unskillful with more unskillful. We dissolve the unskillful with the skillful. And it can be as simple as mindfulness, which is skillful mindfulness. It can be the Brahma-viharas, it could be generosity. I had a wonderful period of time in practice where I just practiced being generous to myself sitting and meditating. And I delighted in all the English expressions having to do with giving, giving attention instead of paying attention. That's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> giving attention. So then there is a dissolving, and I use that word intentionally today, to not give the impression that it just you're going to find the switch, that you flip the switch and it all goes away. Maybe it's, it's a gradual process, fading away, weakening of what's unskillful. 
And what's unskillful tends to be things, not only that cause suffering, but keeps us disconnected. More often than not, when we're unskillful, there's often a lot of story, a lot of ideas operating. And one of the things that we learn through mindfulness practice is that it's very skillful, helpful, to not spend a lot of time lost or caught up in or concerned with the content of our thoughts, the stories that we're telling ourselves, the stories about the past and what happened to us, the stories about what might happen in the future, or just plain old fantasy that hasn't, it's kind of timeless. And probably one of the biggest steps in mindfulness practice is a step, is that of stepping away from the content of what we're thinking, the ideas and all that, the story of the discursive thought that we have, and be able to maybe see it from a distance and just watch it without being involved or simply let it kind of recede to the background so that we could have a more direct connection to our experience. So we can meet our experience for what it is in the moment, not through the filter of concepts, ideas, stories we tell ourselves, what if, what should be, And so much of the complications of our life come from us telling ourselves stories. We make things so much more complicated than they need to be. We don't have enough. We need more. This has to happen. That has to happen that has to be gotten rid of, that has to be fixed. That person should this, that person should do that. I need to have that. And uh, what drives the concerns, what drives these stories and ideas of the how things should be. Why is it that we can't be content with what is? Why are we constantly on the look, searching for something, wanting something, wanting to be different? We're not here. Why is not he, why aren't we home here? Why aren't we just, what is it, why, why are we not just content? here? Why would it, why is it that just being alive, breathing, why isn't that enough? What are we, what stories are we telling ourselves about what's necessary? Are 
or perhaps it's not enough because it's so uncomfortable and painful and suffering to be present here for experience. It's frightening. But on the other side of that, here, it's to make this connection, the mindful connection to here, and to release, to dissolve the holding, the attachments, the wanting, the aversion, the fear, is a way of releasing the life force within us. Attachment is a way of deadening ourselves. Fantasy and reviewing the past and telling stories and telling exci having exciting conversations with people in our heads. There's a kind of deadening energy in that. Not really where life is. But to discover the releasing of the holding, releasing of the attachment, and to feel that just sitting here breathing is not boring, but rather it's something comes alive. It's like this is full. The fullness and dynamism of life is here. The flow, the sensitivity, the openness, the goodness. It's n and to learn to trust, a profound trust in awareness, to be aware, to really trust awareness and rest in awareness, to rest in our body, to rest here, and to feel the freedom that can come from that, the goodness that can come from that, the aliveness, the nourishment when that nourishment of life is not being bottled up or, or uh, closed down by what we cling to and hold on to and demand and want and insist. When it isn't dampened down by the ways in which we create identities, identities around our suffering, Identities holding on to what happened to us. So here you're sitting. Each of you are sitting here in this hall. Is there a qualitative difference between really sitting here in your body, being aware, trusting your awareness, just being here, versus having a conversation in your head or a story or thinking about something?
And is there anything right now, any belief, any feeling that tells you that proves to you that you are not enough, that you are not beautiful, And if there is something that tells you that, what happens if you meet that with kindness and compassion? What happens if you let the, the awareness of how that's held inside of you, that belief, that feeling, what if that's held softly, gently, Might there be some softening of the muscles, softening the control tower? Might there be some way of having mindful overview of it, so you don't fully believe it. And if you can be quiet in the middle of it all, you might discover how little is needed. How little is really needed to be able to breathe easily. How little is needed to feel like this moment is enough, this moment is allowed to be just as it is.
And so there is a shift of orientation, a shift of perspective in this practice. where what seems important shifts from acquiring things, shifts from self-preoccupation, self-concern, shifts from what we want to get, attain, to appreciating the richness, the freedom, the poignancy of being aware. Awareness that penetrates, embraces, holds up, surrounds everything. Awareness which is not defined by anything. So I think of three <clears throat> elements or three aspects of this practice that I've come to value. Be still, trust awareness, and love everyone. Be still, softly. Trust awareness openly. Love everyone tenderly.
and in the trust. The heart can come to rest in itself. The heart can feel at home in itself. And in the love, the heart can be warm. At peace, at home, at rest, and warm, cozy. And sometimes you'll know when it's useful to be still, inwardly still. Other times you'll know when it's useful to be aware, simply aware. Aware of what you're not accepting. Aware of what you're rejecting, avoiding. And sometimes you'll know that it's time for love. to hold whatever is going on with kindness and compassion. May you be still enough quiet enough in your mind that you can trust awareness value awareness and love everything <laughs> 